you have your Bibles, go with me to Nehemiah chapter 10. Let me encourage you, whether you have a real Bible or a fake one that's on your phone. Just kidding. Either way, just kidding. Either way that you would open to Nehemiah 10, we're going to work right through the passage, as we always do. Encourage you too to, if you have a pen or pencil, take some notes and at least fill in the blanks and make me feel good. That'd be good. Just kidding. Nehemiah 10. All right, let's rock and roll. I have no introduction for Nehemiah 10 because. The rest of the outline is way too long, so we're going to jump right in, all right? I'm just going to jump right in. Hopefully you know what's going on in Nehemiah so far. If you don't, uh, basically Nehemiah has come to the, I guess I'll give you a little bit of an introduction. Nehemiah has come to rebuild the city. He's rebuilt the walls around the city, the city of Jerusalem, and now the people are coming back in to inhabit the place, and what is happening now basically, is God's people are in the process of beginning to live like God's people. And God is making a place for His people, has made a place for His people, is reestablishing that place now. And these people are seeking to live as God's people. Now, I want to remind us that this is all in response, ultimately, to God's work. This is not just the people on their own saying, ah, we'd like to be God's people. But instead, this is the response to God's work in saving them. We'll talk more about that in a little bit. So here is my proposition, my main point, whatever you want to call it, for this text. That I think the text is is saying to us today. That is this. God draws out people from the world. He pulls people out of the world in order to redeem them and make them into people who point to His glory as they enjoy His presence. Right? So, God draws out people from the world in order to redeem them and make them into His people, into a people who point to His glory as they enjoy His presence. And then His presence in particularly three different areas. Marriage, rest, and temple worship. Marriage, rest, and temple worship. So, in these three areas, these three areas create rhythms, they create a a place, an environment where God's presence, if these things are done as God intends for them to be done, they live as they're supposed to live in these areas and understand these three areas rightly, that they will enjoy God's presence and they will point to God's glory, that they will be His people. So with that said, let's begin Nehemiah chapter 10, we're going to make our way through these list of names uh, of these people who have placed their seal on the covenant, all right? So they're making a covenant here to be God's people, and we'll talk about this as we go. So we're going to read the first 27 verses and then stop, talk, and then we'll read a few more verses, talk, and so on and so forth, kind of how we typically do. Verse 1, on the seals are the names of Nehemiah the governor, the son of Hakaliah, Zedekiah, Saraiah, Azariah, Jeremiah, Pashur, Amariah, 
Malchijah, Hatush, Shabaniah, Malak, Hiram, Mermoth, Abadiah, Obadiah, I mean, Daniel, Ginnathon, Baruch, Mashalam, Abijah, Majamin, Majiah, Bagiah, Shemaiah. These are the priests. All right. Woo. Verse 9. And the Levites, Jeshua, the son of Azaniah, Benuai, of the sons of Hanadad, Kadmael, and their brothers, Shabaniah, Hadaiah, Kalatah, Palaiah, Hanan, Micah, Rahab, Hashabiah, Zakur, Sherabiah, Shabaniah, Hadaiah, Banai, Benu, the chiefs of the people, Perush, Pahavah, Moab, Alam, Zata, Bani, Buni, Ashgad, Babai, Adonijah, Adonijah, Bagvai, Adon, Eider, Eider, Hezekiah, Azur, Hadai, Hadaah, I mean, Hashum, Bazai, Heraph, Anath, Anathoth, Nabai, Magpaish, Meshalem, Hezur, Meshzabel, Zadak, Jadua, 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 Palatiah, Hanan, Ananiah, Hasha, Hananiah, Hashab, Halashesh, Pilha, Shabak, Rahum, Hashbanah, Masaiah, Ahaiah, Hanan, Anan, Maluk, Haram, Bana. There we go. Whew. All right, my tongue is done. All right, all right, point one. We're just going to sit on this one for a few moments. Point one, God's people live in covenants, okay? It's as plain as day. God's people live in covenants. They live in covenants here. God's people have always lived in a covenant with God. God lives by covenants. God is not a free-for-all God. God is not a relational come-as-you-go God. He is a God who lives in covenants. There is a clear commitment by God's people here. Now, ultimately, this covenant that they're making is in response to God's covenant that he had already made with his people. So this is not a new covenant in the sense of God is establishing a new covenant, but this is a covenant that the people are making in order to keep the covenant. This is just kind of another layer, if you will. So we as a church, we have a church covenant. That's not a new covenant. God didn't make a new covenant. We just have a covenant to keep the covenant. We have an explicit statement to keep a covenant that's explicitly stated as well. But there was a clear commitment, there was a clear declaration by these people that they were making a commitment, again, to keep the covenant. Even though their past failures, and I want you to think about this, they're aware of what's gone on in the past. That they have failed multiple, multiple times. That's what we just rehearsed in chapter 9. That they failed God's faithful. They failed God's faithful. They failed God's faithful. So they owned their past. They knew their past. They know their, their problem. But they still committed to see God on his throne and where he was rightfully to be. So they knew that they had messed up. They knew, I mean, I, I, mean, I had to at least speculate that at this moment they know that they're probably going to mess up again. I mean, unless they're, and maybe they're like, yeah, dude, we're going to, as someone told me when they, came out of the baptism waters, they're like, I'm never going to sin again. And uh, so unless they were crazy like that, they know they're going to mess up again. But they still make this covenant. So we as a church, as, as we think about the covenant that we have as a, as a church body, like we know we're going to mess up. But it's not about being perfect that keeps us in the covenant, it's about repentance that keeps us in the covenant. It's ultimately about the work of Christ that keeps us in the covenant. 
So here's the question I want us to ask. How could they not? This is, and this is kind of where we're going today, but how could they not make this covenant when they had just rehearsed God's faithfulness? And I want us to see that this covenant, again, is not them pulling something out of the air. It's in response to God's faithfulness. It's in response to their rehearsal of what God had done throughout all the history of Israel. How could they not? Now, so we think about this as New Testament believers, as people in the New Covenant. I'm just going to make a couple quick comments because we've really kind of fleshed this out earlier on in Nehemiah. But I just want to encourage you, make commitments to pursue holiness. This is a very practical application. They're making a commitment to pursue holiness, and this is a good thing. Scripture is not holding this up as something not to do. This is something that is good for us to do. When you see the goodness and the glory of God, it should spur you on to be like Him, to live in light of His doing. That light is going to drive me crazy. Do you all hear that? And I just looked at the light, now I can't see. When you see the goodness and the glory of Oh my gosh. When you see the goodness and the glory of God, it should spur you on to be like Him. We're going to try and ignore it. To live in light of His doing. So you should certainly, here's the deal, you should certainly own your past. That's what they're doing. They're owning their past. They repent of their past. But if you're a redeemed follower of Jesus Christ, you own God's past too. Right? So this, this, that's what they're seeing. Yes, we've messed up, but God's been faithful. That's God's past. That's our past. If you're a follower of Christ, you own both of those. His past is perfectly faithful. And I think that's where, like, Christianity often today misses the mark is we just need to be good Christians. We just need to live Christian faithful lives. Why? What motivates that? God's faithfulness motivates that. God's doing motivates that. God's holiness does that. God's work empowers it. So we miss the fact that all throughout the Old Testament, the the Israelites, what they're doing, when they are being faithful, when they are trying to exercise faithfulness, it's always in response to God's faithfulness. I want to encourage you to make commitments to pursue holiness. Practical application for that point. And again, just very briefly, this is why we practice covenant community as a church. We're committed to pursuing holiness together so that as a body we might enjoy the presence of God together. Again, a little bit more on that in a little bit. Let's go back to the text, verse 28. We're going to read verse 28 and 29, and we'll stop there. The rest of the people, the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the land. I want you to just make a quick note with me real quick. He just listed all these people that had signed their names that's to seal the covenant, and then now he says, the rest of the people. So I want you to know that the names signed to the covenant are simply representative. These are all the people, though, are sealing, are, are, are making this covenant. It's not just the people listed. So here he says, then the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the land to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and His rules and His statutes. So I want you to see here, God's people will respond in faith to God's saving work. This is a necessary response. God's people respond in faith to God's saving work. 
So again, what are they doing? They're making this covenant, this commitment to live this way in response to God's saving work. So here's what we see. I want to remind us of some stories in the Bible. One particular big one is the Exodus. The Exodus is a saving work of God. His people were in bondage, not under God's place of rulership. They they'd left there, they were living in sin, but they are in bondage, not in God's place underneath His rule. And what He does, He rescues His people, right? You know, the Passover and, and the plagues and all that. He rescues His people, brings them to a place to be under His rule. And then what happens is the people, what they, they're living under God's rule, they sin again, now they're put back into exile. And now God through Nehemiah and Ezra, is rescuing his people, bringing them back out of bondage, back to be underneath, at least semi-underneath, his rule. And so what happens, now the people respond in faith to God's saving work. Only after God's saving work that now the people desire and plan to live like God's people. I want to point out to you something else in this text. God's people respond by separating from one thing to something else, right? Don't miss that. They separate from something in order to be a part of something else. See, God's people at this point had been living as idolaters. They were worshiping the same pagan gods that the rest of the culture was worshiping. They were not keeping the commands of God. They were convinced that they were okay without God, many of them. Now their response, and what's happening in this passage, is that they're not simply adding Jesus to their daily diet, but instead radically removing themselves from the sinful diet of the culture in order to embrace God, embrace worship of Yahweh. This doesn't mean that they left the nations, it just means that they stopped acting like the nations. You see, in our culture, what we tend to do is we tend to simply add Jesus to our daily lives. Right? We don't leave, repent of something in order to embrace Jesus. We tend to just add something. We add Jesus to what we're already doing. We go about worshiping, a couple examples, maybe our ability to, we think anyways, to control the world around us. To have things happen the way we want them to happen. I'm just as guilty of this myself. And then what we do is then we just, we just add Jesus to that and ask Him to bless it instead of repenting of our ability to control and trusting Christ's ability to control or His actual control, not simply ability. Or maybe we go about worshiping the comfort that makes us feel at peace. We pursue whatever we can to make us feel at rest apart from Christ. And then we just add Jesus to the mix so what we have to do is we basically live for our agenda and then ask Jesus to bless it. But what are the people doing here though? They're leaving. They're leaving something in order to embrace God, in order to embrace Yahweh. So we have to ask the question, are we leaving something to embrace worship of God? <clears throat> I would propose to you that this is a daily leaving. This daily there's things that we're forsaking in order to Worship God. Now, what I want to point you to here is that God's people 
respond by separating. What do they? They leave the culture as far as living like the culture, and they respond by separating themselves to the Word of God, right? We can't miss that at this point in the text. The law here that Moses or that, that Nehemiah is referring to, I want to help you see that it's not just referring to the Ten Commandments. I don't think that he's referring to just, I think he's referring to all that Moses taught in the first five books in the Pentateuch. He's referring to all of these things. They understood the authority of the Scriptures. Now, that's important. We as a church try to promote and encourage a healthy understanding of the authority of the Scriptures. But many times, even in my own life, I know God's Word says to do this, but do I want to do this? And, And that's a struggle in recognizing the authority of the Scriptures. No level of commitment is higher or of greater importance than this. And this simple reason. God has expressed His will in His Word. And if we are God worshipers, then we will seek God's will as He has revealed it. You see, we, we like to think that a lot of our Christian life, and this is something that was really, really good I think we learned in Secret Church on Friday night, was that God, God has left not as many things gray as we like to think. We like to think lots of things are very gray. And I think that's just, it's either two things. It's either laziness, because we don't want to go search the Scriptures to find out, or it's convenient, or maybe it's both. God's Word is very black and white on many, 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 many things. You just may have to study it well enough to know what it's saying. And so they were committed, they were committing themselves, they understood and the importance of the word. As a matter of fact, what you have here in Nehemiah is you have multiple examples of the word being read and then someone explaining the word, much like today. The word's being read and then it's being explained. You have examples of preaching, I think, in Nehemiah. Of course, they preach for a lot longer, like five, six hours. So maybe we'll just do that today. What do you think? <clears throat> All right, well, Greg and I are going to go six hours today right now what was here's the question what was the point like what was the point of this why why would God work in such a way to bring about this kind of obedience why would why would God's people respond to God's work what's going on and I think the point of the mosaic law and the temple like we're going to talk about here in a few moments was for God's people to enjoy his presence for God to display his glory among his people as they lived as his people, as he separated them from the world. And the people followed the law of God so they could enjoy the presence of God. You know, many of us don't enjoy the presence of God because we just don't live like the people of God. We want to live the way we want, and then we want to ask God to come into our mess. You see, for God to dwell amongst his people, it would be on his terms. And it's the same thing today. Even as new covenant followers of Jesus Christ, it's still on God's terms. So we'll work through this. So the people commit to three very basic parts of the law. And this is really where we're going to kind of dive in here. But these pieces, these pieces of the law that they're going to commit to, are really very foundational for much of life. If these three parts are understood and lived faithfully, then much of life then falls into place. And I think the same thing is going to be very, very true for us. 
I think these three pieces, again, have huge application for us. I think God in His grace has given us three gifts, these three gifts that we can order much of life on. That if we would get these three things put in the right place, and then let everything else fall around these things, it would be very beneficial for us, and it would be very glorifying to God. You all remember anybody from school, like, they talk about, like, priorities, and you take, like, a jar, and you set, like, the big rocks in there first, and then you set the little rocks and let the little rocks fall around the big rocks. You know, anybody ever done? As where if you put, like, the, the, all the little rocks in there first, and you try and put the big rocks, somehow the big rocks now are, like, coming out of the jar, and you don't have room for the big rocks. Anybody seen that? All right. It's the same thing. If we set these pieces in the rightful place, then let everything else fall around us. This would be very, very helpful for us and very, very glorifying to God. And I think we would begin to experience the presence of God. And as in the language that we've been talking about in Nehemiah, we've talked about this idea of developing deep convictions. These are three things that you need, you must develop deep convictions about. Okay? God's people should have deep convictions concerning these things. All three commitments are graces meant for our good and to display God's glory. Now understand the seriousness of covenant rebellion. Now I want you to don't miss that in this passage. Notice what they said. Go back and read with me. He says, join with the brother, verse 29, with the brothers and nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and His rules and His statutes. And so they will enter into a curse and an oath. If they fail to keep the terms, what they're saying is we will bring a curse upon us. We know the curse is coming. We'll bring it upon us. We, we know, we, we understand the importance of this. So they, com- they commit to follow all that God intended for them in the Pentateuch, or the first five books of the Bible. And now what follows again is that they intend to obey these things. So I want us to understand the importance of what they're committing to. It's not just three good ideas. These are three things that God has laid out for His people for their good and for His glory. Let's read Nehemiah chapter 10, verse 30. <clears throat> we will not give, so this is the first commitment We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. Now, the first thing we see is that the Lord is the point of marriage. The Lord is the point of marriage. If you want to go back and read later, go back and read Exodus 34, Deuteronomy 7. These provide a basis for the stipulation of what's going on here. You see Ezra, the book right before Nehemiah, talks a lot about this. You see, the problem is intermarriage with people who have not separated themselves from the sins of the people in the land, right? I know some... Old time churches and stuff, maybe even some today, talking about this is, this is where you shouldn't, if you shouldn't marry outside of your race. I don't think this is supporting 
anti-biracial marriage or anything like that. I don't think that's what he's talking about. The idea here is picked up later in the, by, later in the New Testament about being unequally yoked. I think this, this is in the same vein of thought there. It is, it is followers of Christ marrying followers of Christ. Or at this point, followers of Yahweh marrying followers of Yahweh. Again, you see this, the idea here was to separate themselves from those who had not devoted themselves to God. I mean, how could you, well, I'm getting ahead of myself, you see the same problem in Ezra 7 through 10, and we'll see the same problem again in Nehemiah 13 in just a couple weeks. This commitment to be united in the worship of Yahweh has impact on every other familial household obligations. Anything that deals with the family, if you're not married to someone who loves God, or for us today, loves Christ, then it's, it's, it changes everything. It changes all the other obligations. So for example, if both worship Yahweh, then they will train up their child to worship Yahweh. That was an application. That was the concern here. The people of God continuing on, generation after generation, that, that God's people would then train their kids up to worship God's people. But if one worshiped Yahweh and one worshiped a different God, who are they going to train their child up to worship? Another example, unity in marriage is impossible if the couple does not agree on who God is and what it means to know and worship Him. Just practically, how does that even work? You know, I was thinking about this because I hear all the time, well, I worship God and, and my wife or my spouse worships, you know, this. And we, we, we have different, and we still have a good marriage. I think probably what that means is that one or both of you isn't really worshiping the one you say you're worshiping. Because exclusive worship of Yahweh would, uh, would really have an impact on the unity of marriage. I don't have time to spend on that. <clears throat> you can flesh that out. So the covenant between Israel and God was treated as a marriage. And I want us to see that. The covenant between Israel and God was treated as a marriage. You can go back and read Jeremiah 31 later if you want to. If a man and woman were not united in the worship of God, how could their marriage reflect the relationship between God and his people? All right, so this is, does that make sense? So God's people were in a marriage-type covenant, if you will, with God. And then God's people were meant to live that out as a tangible display for the rest of the world in their marriages. So now you have a husband and a wife, both worshiping Yahweh, living in this covenant relationship that was meant to display, reflect, model for the world God's relationship with His people. So if these, this couple did not both worship Yahweh, then how in the world were they to model this relationship? It's impossible. It's not possible. This is where Paul gets his theology in Ephesians 5. Paul didn't just come up with this idea that the Christian marriage reflects the relationship between God and His church. He doesn't just pull that out of nowhere. He gets that from the Old Testament. Paul teaches that marriage is about Christ and His church. And marriage exists to display, ultimately guys, the way God loves His people. Marriage exists to display the way God loves His people and the way His people respond to His love. 
God's doing, our response to God's doing, this display. Marriage is meant to display the same thing. So Christians, if you consider yourself a follower of Jesus, some of you are happy with simply having a spouse who says, I like Jesus. I like Jesus, yeah. I worship Jesus, that's cool. We're missing the point. The point is not just that your spouse would casually say they like this dude named Jesus or casually follow Christ or casually walk with God, but maybe, sometimes, maybe not. But what we want to do, what I think we are led to do here is to pursue what marriage should point to. We should pursue that our marriages would point to the relationship between God and Israel, Christ and the church. God and Israel, for us, Christ and the church. Does your marriage reflect the relationship of Jesus and his church? That's really the question. Do you want your future marriage to refer, to, to, to display the relationship between Jesus and his church? If you're looking for a spouse, you're single, looking for a spouse, you want, you should want, you desperately need a spouse who understands that that's the point of marriage. That God has given us marriage as a tangible display of his relationship between Christ, the groom, church, the bride. And all that that means, sacrificial love, submission from the bride, all these things, that, that your marriage would represent that. If the spouse or the potential spouse doesn't want that, run. Don't do it. Your marriage then will miss the whole point. And if your marriage isn't pursuing that now, it's missing the point. We should cultivate wonderful marriages so that our marriages display Christ's love for the church and the church's submission to Christ. Certainly, that's an enjoyable marriage, right? Certainly, that's beneficial for us. But most importantly, it displays God's glory. But isn't it wonderful? Displaying God's glory brings great joy. Displaying God's glory brings God's presence. God's presence has to be here to display God's glory. That's, that's really the point. So as you display God's glory, you enjoy God's presence. Wow, what a, what a deal. So the Lord, then, is the point of marriage. And they understood this here. That's why they couldn't marry outside of the people of God. Because the point was to display the relationship with Yahweh. So if the Lord is the point of marriage, I mean, there's all kinds of things that are practical for us to think about that. How does Christ treat His bride? How does the bride respond to Christ? And work that out. Ask questions like, how selfish is Jesus when it comes to His bride? Is He selfish? Does He demand His ways? Or does He lovingly lay down His, wa- his life for His bride? Maybe if the Lord was the point of our marriage, then maybe the Word of God would be a little more central in our marriage. Again, just another point of application. If the Lord is the point of marriage, then how does sacrifice for the body of Christ look like in your marriage? What does it look like? It's going to look different, I get that. But what does it look like? Now, as we think about this idea of family... 
setting the, the pace or setting the trajectory for the rest of the life, then how does your marriage, if Jesus is the point of your marriage, how's that going to impact parenting? How's that going to impact the way you relate to the rest of your family? How's that going to impact, your, if the Lord is the point of your marriage, how is that marriage and the Lord the point of that marriage going to impact the other marriages, both saved people and lost people? How's that going to impact them? How's it going to impact the other marriages in the church? How's that marriage going to impact the singles and soon to be married around you? If the Lord is the point of your marriage, and I think what flows from that is He's going to be the point of your parenting. If, if this is ordered rightly, then parenting should be ordered right. I mean, I'm not saying it's just going to come easy, but it flows from that. If you live as though the Lord is the point of your marriage, then it will simply strengthen you in your church relationship as well. So if, here, here's here, if, if marriage is meant to reflect Jesus' relationship with the church, one of the glorious things that God has done is given us our relationship with the church horizontally to help strengthen the marriage with our spouse horizontally. What do I mean by that? You're given plenty of opportunity to sacrifice, give preference, lay your life down in the body of Christ. That's going to strengthen you to give preference, lay your life down, sacrifice in your marriage, and vice versa. So I just I just want you to say you could take that we can talk. Matter of fact, I'm considering coming back to that next Sunday and fleshing that out more. But right now. Just think through, how does, how does your marriage, if Jesus is the point, how is it reflecting Jesus' relationship with his bride? Everything. How do you, as then the bride, respond to your spouse, your husband? All those things. All right, let's move on. Nehemiah chapter 10, verse 31. So we just had to handle the first commitment, and then we'll handle the second commitment. He says, and if the people of the land... Bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell. We will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forgo the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. Now, for those of you who might be interested, I think, I think what we're seeing here in Nehemiah, even though it took me a while to study this, I'm still studying it, but I think we see part of in Nehemiah, we see a foreshadowing of what Paul's going to talk about later, and that is the spirit of the law versus the letter of the law. Because Nehemiah is, is working with the spirit of the law here just barely to show us, because, because like the idea of the peoples of the land bringing goods in and then buying that from them, there's no prohibition against that. So, so Nehemiah is taking the law and saying, all right, we need to apply this law in our day. So what is the spirit of the law? I think Nehemiah is just foreshadowing what Paul is going to help us. So I think Nehemiah is helping us understand how do we then, as New Testament believers, understand the law. How do, we, how do we use the law? If we're not under the law anymore, how do we then as Christians follow the law? If we're under the law of Christ, how do we obey the law in the Old Testament? So that's, that was a side note if you're interested in studying that. <clears throat> Second point, or second sub point here, is that the Lord is the point of the Sabbath. That's where we're going to talk for the next few moments. The Lord is the point of the Sabbath, the day of rest. The Lord is the point of the Sabbath. 
Now, there are three parts to this. We're not going to flesh out all these little things, but there's the weekly Sabbath, the weekly day of rest, the sabbatical year, which is where they would lay the, lay the, let the ground lay untouched, unworked for a year. And third, the canceling of debts. So think about real quickly the keeping of the Sabbath, right? It was ultimately about trust in Yahweh. Right? That's a very broad statement, I understand. Ultimately, the Sabbath was about trusting in Yahweh. It was impossible for an Israelite to keep the Sabbath apart from faith. He would always end up doing work. There's always something to be done. I can't let it go untouched today. I've got to get out there and work it. And if I don't work it today, I'm not going to have any provision tomorrow. Now for us, with savings accounts and so on and so forth, you know, that might look a little bit different for us. But we have our ways that we do that as well. We'll talk about that in a moment. The only way to keep the Sabbath was to trust that the best stewardship of this life or this person's life was to take time to rest and not work. And that God's provision would be enough. So keeping the Sabbath, though, and just tuck this in the back of your mind, just like marriage helps keep a bunch else in line. Sabbath, keeping the Sabbath for these people helped keep seasonal holidays, holy days rather, seasonal holy days in line, festivals in line. It kept these things in a rhythm. The regular rhythms of life of the nation was bound up in the people keeping the Sabbath rest. They'd be faithful in other things that they were supposed to do if they maintained this regular weekly rest. So that's keeping the Sabbath I'll say much less on the sabbatical year, and I'm not going to address the canceling of the debts. But keeping the sabbatical year, similar concept here, it gave evidence to faith. I mean, imagine how crazy it would be to not work the land for a whole year. What do you think? Hey, boss, you know, you go to your, your employer and say, all right, I've been here six years. Next year, I'm taking a break, all right? Taking a sabbatical. I'm going to be gone for 12 months. I'll see you in 12 months. Like, it'd be crazy, right? Be crazy. I, I don't think God's calling us to do that, but the heart of the law, the point of the law, He is certainly calling us to do. But how crazy would that be in this time? I mean, they're working the ground, working the ground. They've got to work the ground in order to eat. They've got to work the ground in order to sell and buy animals to sacrifice. Like, everything is bound up and working the land and working the land and what God says, God promises, you can go back and read in Leviticus 25, that he would allow the land to produce enough for three years in the sixth year, but a man who did not trust God would not let the land rest. So God says, I'll give you enough for all three years. The year in the sixth, the year in the seventh, and you're going to need it for the, the year that you start working it again. Oh my goodness, Right? And we have a hard time trusting in God's provision, right? All right, so sabbatical year, I want you to see those things. Trusting God's provision. So now, if you're a follower of Christ, right? I'm going I'm to make a cop-out statement here for just a second. Whether you believe we are still to observe the Sabbath, meaning a day each week that we do not work, I think Paul makes that a matter of conscious, conscience in Romans 14. The fact still remains that we still need regular rest and we still need regular reminders of our eternal rest in Christ and of God's provision thereof. And I just made a very statement. 
The fact remains, we still need regular rest, and we still need regular reminders of our eternal rest in Christ and God's provision thereof. Hebrews 4.3, I encourage you to go read that passage. He says, for we who have believed enter that rest. He's talking about this eternal rest in Christ. I think ultimately, church, and I don't have time to flesh this out today, but I think ultimately the Sabbath rest and was, was trusting, was, was them expressing, displaying their trust in God's provision. Then for us, what is, what is God's ultimate provision? Certainly the food we eat, the air we breathe, all those things is God's provision, and we need reminders of that. What is God's ultimate provision? Christ. It is that this eternal unrest that we have with the Father, right? This eternal hatred that we have with the Father, this eternal enemy-like relationship we have with the Father, that that fighting and that warring that for many people will go on for all of eternity, that that somehow we could find rest. We could find rest in that relationship. That the people around us who, who don't love Christ, that are enemies of God, that they could somehow find rest in that relationship. And how do they do that? How do they do that? How do we find rest in that? By God's provision of His Son dying on the cross for our sins. Then we could be at rest in Christ in relationship with God. Now I think the Sabbath points ultimately to that. That we would have eternal rest. And I think this is where we're headed heaven-wise. When we throw off the temptations of the flesh, we walk in, sanctification is complete, and now we live now in eternal rest. We no longer war with the flesh, right? We're no longer warring with sin as if we were enemies of God still. And we enter into eternal rest. All right, so if the point of the Sabbath is to point ultimately to eternal rest in Christ, how do we be those who display trust in Christ? How do we be those who display trust in God's provision of Christ? I mean, there's, there's a lot to this. Don't have time. But we set up the rhythms of our lives in such a way to display hope in Christ and not hope in this world. I think that's one of the largest ways that we do this. Trust in Christ and not trust in this world. Trust in God's provision and not trust in this world. We set up rhythms to do that. Many of us have more hope in our jobs than we do in God's provision. Now, God is providing for us through our jobs, largely. But God doesn't need our job to provide for us, at least the particular one you have. Many of us place more of our hope in making our kids happy. We're just displaying hope in that, just like the rest of the world does. Our provision is not that we would make happy kids. Our provision is in Christ. Our rest is in Christ. Our hope in education. I mean, these are all things that the world hopes in, but there is no hope in those things. It's, if, if, at the very, at, at the most, temporary hope. But hope in Christ, in the heart of God. We set up rhythms in such a way to display hope in Christ. I think another application of this, just if I can mention this very briefly, I think many of us get worn out. We get worn out 
You're just too stinking busy. You do too much. Or we're just doing the wrong things. So what happens is we don't get any rest. You work, 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 work. You don't do any rest because you don't trust God. You only trust in your hand. And then when you get tired, what gets thrown away? What gets pushed out? (laughs) The very thing you need. Time in the Word. Time in prayer. Time with the body of Christ. How many things each week, rhythmically, are you placing trust in, just as the world does, instead of placing trust in God's provision? I think education is a big one. Many of us, our kids' education is more important than anything else in the world. No. If anything, our kids' education of Jesus should be important. That they would learn to learn, they would learn to grow and love and place hope in Christ. Whether they go to an Ivy League school or they push wires through a studded wall in a newly built house, it does not matter as long as they love Jesus. Right? You want your kids to have rest, not be happy. They need rest in Jesus. We need rest in Christ. All right, let's keep going. Lord is the point of marriage. Lord is the point of the Sabbath. Nehemiah chapter 10, we're going to read 32 to 39. We also take on ourselves, this is the third obligation, this third commitment. We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. For the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement of Israel, or for Israel, and for all the work of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people, have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of God according to our Father's house, houses. At times, appointed year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God, as it is written in the law. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of every tree. Again, that's another stipulation I don't think that is in there. Year by year to the house of the Lord. Also to bring to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, and as is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and of our flocks, and to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, um, the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil to the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God, and to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground. For it is the Levites who collect the tithes in our towns where we labor. And the priests, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers. And listen to this last phrase. We will not neglect the house of our God. The Lord is the point of temple worship. And let's just see this is a very important point. Again, I, I think we see some things where Nehemiah is, is pushing the spirit of the law versus the letter of the law here. Won't dive into that, but... The Lord is the point of the law. The summary statement of this whole section is that last phrase. We will not neglect the house of our God. Here, they commit to support the worship of God at the temple. Right? They commit to support the worship of God, Yahweh, at the temple. 
So temple commitment, this is if you want a sub-point, temple commitment sets the framework for everything pertaining to the worship of Yahweh. Right? It sets the trajectory for the worship of Yahweh, just like the Lord is the point of marriage and how it displays the relationship between Jesus and his church. That sets the trajectory of both marriage and everything familial related. Same thing is true if the Lord is the point of the Sabbath. Regular rest and trust in his provision sets the trajectory for everything else that work-related, rhythmic life, things that we do regularly, holy days we celebrate, all those things. It sets the trajectory for that. Now... Commitment to care for temple worship sets the trajectory for everything else pertaining to worship of Yahweh. If the people, so here I'm going to flesh that out for just a moment. If the people were right with God through temple worship, then it would align their worship the rest of the time. So if they were not able to make sacrifices, if they were not able to, to please God in the, in the parameters that God had set out through temple worship, then they were not right with God the rest of the week. If they weren't right with God then, they couldn't be right with God the rest of the time. But if the people cared for the temple and cared to... to to give sacrifices, to care for the priests, all those things, then all those who were committed were blessed. All those who were committed to doing this were blessed with perseverance in the worship of Yahweh all the time. All right? Everybody tracking? Okay. So the point of all this, remind us, it's about being with God. It's about the presence of God dwelling with His people. And his people enjoying his presence. So if you go back and read in, in, in the Pentateuch and Exodus and you read what the tabernacle looks like and all the festal garments and all those things that God had established as how to care for the temple or the tabernacle at that point and then later on the temple and, and how these were supposed to be built and what's supposed to go on and, and the kind of sacrifices needed, the kind of wood that was needed, the garments that the priests wore, all those things were things they had to take care of. They had to take care of those things in order then to worship God in the temple, take care of the priests who would then offer up the sacrifices, regular, all these things, in order for the people of God to maintain relationship with God. Again, I want to remind us, we had to do these sacrifices. They had to be done at the temple so all this, caring for the priests, caring for the facility even. Ultimately, the temple was about the Lord. It was about people enjoying the presence of God as they obeyed the commands of God through the worship at the temple. They would live in right relationship with God as they lived in right worship with God through the temple and what God had planned and intended for them to live in right relationship with Him. Alright. So, we're not building a temple next week, all right? We're going to go start animal sacrifices. I don't think many of us have room in our yards to, uh, to raise lambs, goats. Although I, I might, I'd probably drive my neighbors crazy. But. So Christians, how do, we, how do we understand this? How do we live this? This is Nehemiah, years and years and years before Christ. How do we, how do we live this? 
I think the heart of the situation was care for the dwelling place of God so that God's people might enjoy His presence. I think that was the, all, the heart of what's going on in temple worship. It was care for the dwelling place of God so that God's people, ow, so that God's people would enjoy His presence. Sorry, I hit my hand. All right, let me say that again. The heart of the situation was care for the dwelling place of God so that people might enjoy His presence, okay? Now, now, where does God dwell? In the new covenant in Christ, where does God dwell now? He doesn't dwell in the temple. He dwells where? He dwells in His people, right? His people, not all the people of the world, but His people, His people. Romans 8, 9, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells where? In you, right? So to be committed to the new temple is to be committed to where? The local body, the body of Christ. I think that's how we, as New Covenant believers, live out the commands of God in Nehemiah chapter 10 in these passages, these verses. So to be committed to the new temples, to be committed to the local church. And I think ultimately it's to be committed to the universal church, but then that's expressed as we're committed to the local church. I mean, practically, how do you care for temple worship of those Hani people in Vietnam? All right, well, we can pray for them. We can even send help. But how do, we, how do we care for their worship of God and their ability to continue, continually experience the presence of God? How do, we, how do we practically do that daily? We can pray for them and praise God. We don't get to have conversations with them. We don't get to watch them with the Word daily. We don't get to exhort them daily with the Word. We don't get to do all those things. So, so in order for us to live out this care for the new temple, the church universal, we do that in the church local. Now I think certainly this is nothing less than financially caring for the church. But I think if financially caring and how we deal with our finances is simply a reflection of what our heart supports, I think it's more than money. I think it's at least that, but it's more than that. So caring for the temple is more than just money. All right, commitments to the body, I think, directly affects your perseverance and mine. All right, if you want a sub-point, commitment to the body, so commitment to temple worship, commitment to the new temples, right? So thinking if those who are New Testament followers of Jesus Christ, that your commitment, my commitment to the body affects my perseverance as a temple and your perseverance as a temple. All right, so question, practical question here. How are we commanded then to take care of the new temple? It's the people of the body of Christ so that we might enjoy the indwelling of God, right? So if the point of the old temple was so that the people could enjoy the presence of God and that they were to care for that by means of of financial provision, by means of sacrifice and, and, and regular journeys to Jerusalem, all those things, how are we then to care for the new temple, which is the people, 
How do we do that? Let's have a couple examples. One, care for the equippers and the soul watchers, namely the pastors. Care for the equippers, care for the soul watchers. Very quickly here. Ephesians 4, 11 through 12, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to what? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So caring for the pastors, the leaders, the, the ones who are equipping for the ministry. I do think that means financially, but I think it means more than just simply finances. Why? Why? So they can devote themselves to equip you. So they can devote themselves to, to encourage, to equip, to empower, to, to, to walk with you as you do what? As you live as a new temple and dwelling place of the presence of God. That's what you get. You get help with that. Hebrews 13, 17 <clears throat> says this very quickly, obey your leaders and submit to them for their keeping watch over your souls as those who have to give an account. Let them do this with joy, not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. All right, so that's what I think, again, we get into it's more than finances, more than finances, seeking to follow, making it a joy for them. Again, these are a couple examples of how we take care of the new temple. Think about this. As, as you, all right, I'm going to talk about money for just a second. As you give and support the work of this church, right? Not only are you, when you do that, freeing up, let's say, let's say Rusty and I, you're, not, you're freeing us up to give time to the study of the word so that we can equip you, right? This is what's going on right now. You're being equipped by the study of the Word. But here's what's awesome. You're getting the benefits of that. Right? So you hear the teaching of the Word. You're being equipped. You're being equipped to do what? To be new temple, indwelt people of God. But when you give and support that for the equipping of yourself, you're not just supporting the equipping of you. You're supporting the equipping of your brothers and sisters around you. The body. So not only are you caring for yourself and your family and your kids and your extended family as, as the gospel comes through you, as you are indwelt by God and encouraged and equipped to do that, but also you're taking care of the body around you. And you're equipping, you're helping equip them as you support those who give, who are doing the equipping. But also you get soul watching. He says those who watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. You have someone that you're supporting that's going to give an account for how you live spiritually and how you're led spiritually. Now, I'll say this. You can invest your money in a lot of things, right? I want to invest my things that have eternal value. One of those things is having a body, having leaders to watch over your souls. So that's something of eternal value. All right, we'll leave that out. I think it's the very least money. It's certainly more. Second way in which we take care of the new temple so that the body of Christ might enjoy the indwelling of God. And this is where, this is where us, I'm thankful that we don't own a building. Well, well we do kind of, um, if you count my garage. Uh, but uh, we, don't, uh, we don't own this building where we all gather every single week because we don't get confused 
with just temple worship means just caring for the physical building. I think it means that. So if, you, if we owned a building, or, or even like the, the church office, we as a church, we pay for things that need fixed. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't pay for that. We pay for that as a church. Uh, because we use it exclusively, well, basically exclusively for that. But we're not confused. I think it's easy for churches to go, okay, new temple worship, that means we've we got to make sure we have padded seats and air conditioning and all that. It's probably at least that, but it's so much more than that. It's the one another's. Right? So how do we care for, take care of the new temple, the body of Christ? I think the second way we do this is all the one another verses. There's like, I don't know, 56 of them or 76 of them, something like that. I just have a few examples. Romans 12.10, be devoted to one another. Be devoted to one another. Well, probably more than your football team. Romans 15.14, instruct one another. Wow. That means you have to know something in order to instruct something. 1 Corinthians eleven thirty three. Greet one another with a holy kiss. We're going to start that today. Just kidding. <laughs> Man, the sickness would travel like crazy, right? Wow. Be like the renovation plague. <clears throat> God would wipe out a whole, like multiple generations like that. The way sickness travels around this church. <laughs> Whew. It's like quarantining, right? You know? I appreciated Jess as we were gathering for, for Secret Church and as we were gathering for house gathering or Bible study in my house on Tuesday night. I saw Jess with Lysol going around, spraying everything. Because the fact is, if none of us are sick, we're probably carrying someone else's sickness. All right. <laughs> and so are you all, too. Bunch of sickos. Galatians 6 2. Carry each other's burdens. Burden. Technically, it's singular. Carry each other's burden. Colossians 3.13, bear with each other. Oh, my goodness. Bear with each other. That means, that means someone does something you don't like, bear with them. <laughs> all right. I want to encourage you that when it comes to all of life to think, how am I encouraging temple worship? How am I encouraging temple worship? Now clearly we as a church understand that as more than just, but at the very least, this time on Sunday mornings. This is all of life, the whole body. How am I encouraging temple worship? How am I helping my brothers and sisters experience the presence of God? Okay? Ask that question regularly, all the time. I think too often when it comes to church, we tend to just think about ourselves. Now, here's, here's the way. Do I need to learn what's being taught? Does it conveniently fit my schedule? Why don't we ask, I mean, we do need to ask, does, can I make room for it in my schedule? Certainly. Do I need to learn what's being taught? We need, yes, we need to ask that. We need to ask questions like, how can I how do I need to be used of God to encourage maybe this learning in a brother or a sister? How does my presence encourage their learning? How does my presence encourage 
their enjoyment of the presence of God? How do I play a role in that? Right, so we, we got to, again, this is, this is one of those beautiful things. God's given us the church to help reorder our thoughts. Because one way, selfish. And we're going to teach our families to live selfishly. The other way, self, selfless, or at least getting at selflessness. How can I think about this in terms of other people? And then my family, what's awesome is that my family gets to see me lay my life down for other people. My kids get to watch me lay my life down for other people. How are they going to learn to give of themselves and not be selfish and not live for themselves and instead live for God? To see their mom and dad live selflessly for God. And the primary place I believe he's given us to do that is the body of Christ. Devoted to one another, instructing one another, bearing with one another, exhorting one another, right? Hebrews 3. All right, so our commitment to support the support of the church is a commitment to ensure that benefits our perseverance and our brothers' and sisters' perseverance as the new temple and dwelling places of God, right? Let's have a grand picture for what church is about. Let's not have this little measly picture. It's just this little thing that we go to or we, this little thing that we participate in haphazardly. It's something that has grand benefits for you, grand benefits for me and for us as a church. So commitment is kind of a, a last sub-point here. Commitment to the body sets the trajectory of your weekly worship. Commitment to the body, worshiping with the body, not just here, but your commitment to live life with the body sets a trajectory for your weekly worship. Same thing here, right? Same thing in Nehemiah. If they get temple worship right, they'll get worship of Yahweh right the rest of the week, or at least should, or at least head in that trajectory. If we don't get temple worship right as Christians today, then our worship of Christ the rest of the week will suffer. And I think the level of commitment to temple worship, right, understood in a New Testament way, the, our commitment to that is correlating to the level of worship you do the rest of the week. I want you to look at that. Look at your worship of God, of Christ, the rest of the week. What is that saying about your worship of Christ? What is that saying about your worship of Christ with the body? So the time you put into worshiping with the body through prayer, singing, preaching, Bible study, physical care for each other, all of that directly affects the worship you have or don't have the rest of the week. I think that's something we learned from Nehemiah here. All right, last, last thought. Ordering your life around commitment to the local body is not about upholding an institution. It's about setting the trajectory of your worship. All right? Commitment is not just about upholding a trellis. It's about setting the trajectory of your worship. Your commitment in the body of Christ is all about encouraging and equipping each of us to worship Christ. God has given us this grace to each of us so that Yahweh or Christ would be worshipped, so that Christ would be exalted. Okay? All right. So spend a few moments wrapping all this up, and we'll call it a day. In marriage, you get to be a display of the glorious relationship of Christ and His bride, the church. 
And this sets the trajectory for your marriage. The Lord is the point. In Sabbath resting, you remind yourself and everyone else around you that rest in Christ is the goal and that it only comes through faith and His work on the cross. The Lord is the point of Sabbath rest. Third, in temple worship, you set the trajectory for worship of Christ all week. The body of Christ is meant to reorder your life around rightful worship of God. Right? This time together, house gathering together, when you have lunch with people from the body of Christ, all of that should be for the purpose of reordering your life around rightful, rhythmic worship of God. In prayer, communion, all these things. Now I want you to see in all those things that the Lord is the point. The Lord is the point of Sabbath rest. The Lord is the point of the marriage. The Lord is the point of the new temple body of Christ. Relationship between Christ and His bride. Rest comes only from Christ. Rightful worship of Christ all week long. All these things, the Lord is the point. It's all about Him. It's all about His people enjoying His presence every moment. You know, He died on the cross, right? He died on the cross so that you could see that He is the point. When you see and cherish that He is the point, your soul will find satisfaction in the presence of God. The display of God's faithfulness, as we talked about in Nehemiah 9, spurred on the commitment to live in such a way so as to enjoy God's presence. So we see God's work, and we rehearse God's work, and many of us need to go to the Old Testament, and we can rehearse God's work, and then we go to the New Testament, so we can see God's work on the cross, and remind ourselves of God's work. So it would spur on commitment to live in such a way as to enjoy God's presence. Developing deep convictions about marriage. And this gave you a taste of what those deep convictions should, should bring about, and Deep convictions about rest in Christ and deep convictions about temple worship. Jesus' faithfulness on the cross should spur commitment to live for Christ, for God. You see what He did. The price He paid. And I also want to remind us, if you're a follower of Christ, that Jesus' faithfulness in life and death ensures that His people, His people, His chosen redeemed people will indeed enjoy God's presence forever. It's done. Amen? Amen. Let's pray and we'll worship through song. Father, thank You for Your Word today. I pray that, uh, that we would respond as we see your goodness, Father, though your goodness is done, your, your goodness is being done, Father, your goodness has been displayed, it was displayed on the cross. And Father, I pray that you give us eyes to see it. Give us hearts to, to see it. Give us affections for it. Father, that then we would be spurred to live in light of it. And we would find ourselves saying, I can't help we make a commitment to do this, knowing that we're probably going to fail, but knowing that Christ in His life and death, that He didn't fail. And that we are found ultimately holy and righteous in His blood, and that we are free to live, free from the bondage of sin, from the slavery of sin, and we are now free to live 
pursuing your presence, Father, knowing that the blood of Christ covers us, and because of that, you indwell us. Father, if there's anyone here that does not know whether or not they're a follower of Jesus, or maybe they want to be a follower of Jesus, Father, I pray that you would grant them repentance, that you would help them see that they stand sinful and and unrighteous before you, and hopeless before you. But Father, that they're standing next to you is, is your Son Jesus, who provides all hope, all the righteousness that this person needs, that, that we need. Father, if they would repent of their sins, place their trust in your Son, and His work as the payment for their sins, that you would, that you would grant them forgiveness and new life today. I pray that all of us would, be, would all of us would be reminded that daily we need the washing of the blood of Jesus. We need the gospel today just as much as we needed it the day that we were saved. I'll give you praise in your Son's name. Amen. Would you guys stand with me as you worship?